Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. Yeah, Ashley, there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on that relates to the guests that we're going to be speaking to today. And um, one of the things that I thought would be interesting to ask you about is how is it that we could kind of think about strategies for organizing, given that so much of what, you know, we knew or relied on for for organizing, we can't necessarily do right now because we're supposed to be social distancing. Right. So, you know, at the core of organizing is relationship building, right? That's the, the most fundamental element of organizing is building authentic relationships and trusting relationships with people in community. And so, so much of that is knocking on doors, talking to people, one-on-one interactions, listening to people deeply and hearing what they have to say. So, you know, when your field work is typically knocking doors or, you know, block clubs or, you know, those type of approaches, that's much more difficult when, We're asking people to stay home, wear their masks. So I think different organizations have been thinking a lot about how do you build relationships? How do you build and uh, sustain those social networks, right? When people are asked to physically distance themselves. I think it's been a struggle for a lot of of organizations because you can't only rely on social media, right? So social media can be a very powerful tool, but it is one tool. Um, And so thinking about the different ways and and borrowing from kind of historically relevant other organizing strategies, um, still being in community with people while uh, practicing physical distancing. um, I think that, you know, people are really trying to think about ways to do that in a meaningful way. And, And this has been particularly salient in across the country too, um, not just in terms of kind of mobilizing around concerns or problems or issues, which is very valid and very important, um, but also around the census. And so um, census or even voter mobilization efforts that are going on because those tend to have very structured plans um, about how to get people out, how to encourage people to participate in the census. And, and that can be a real difficult or, or a real challenge as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, Casey, you know, why do we care about things like voter mobilization and census, you know, taking the census? If part of what we're talking about is the value of organizing towards those things, why are they important? Yeah, no, I think that people kind of have a natural understand maybe not natural understanding but but a, but a quick understanding of why voter mobilization is important for for organizing and for democracy right because that's one of the things that we think of as 
uh, as democracy, I mean, in many cases, people think that's the only part of democracy. Maybe yeah. that's problematic, but that, oh, of course I vote, that's democracy. So mobilizing voters, that makes a lot of sense. But people don't really recognize the importance of the census. I think that they see it as just a bunch of data collection or number counting or, or whatever it is. But in fact, those those that data, those numbers that we're crunching are really meaningful because it's important for resource allocation. So if you're not being included on the census and let's say, you know, only 30% of your neighborhood is, then the census is what informs the federal government in many cases, but the state government in other cases about where what communities need what resources. So if they've drastically undercounted the community in which you live, then you're not going to be represented in a manner that's meaningful. And, and by the way, this isn't just resources. This can also be true of just how many representatives your area has, which comes back to voting. So if you think voting matters, then you should really think that the census matters because the two are uh, inextricably tied together. Yeah, I. So I'm super excited to talk to um, our our guest today because um, he's he's an activist who's been working in these spaces and and he's done all sorts of organizing and 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 one of the projects he's been working on quite a bit is in the Cleveland area around um, getting people to take the census and doing some really thoughtful. Um, organizing around voter mobilization as well. So today we're talking with Jerry Pena. Jerry is a Cleveland-based activist and organizer. Born in the Windy City of Chicago and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, Jerry is very involved in his community. He was the chair of the Civic Involvement Committee, where he had the responsibility of recruiting and training local citizens on the importance of civic involvement. He's worked with numerous nonprofits such as the Cleveland Housing Network, Neighborhood Connections, and El Barrio. Jerry attended Baldwin Wallace College in Ohio, where he majored in organizational leadership with a minor in communications. Jerry participated in extended studies program while at Baldwin Wallace that took him to South Africa, where he got a chance to see how leadership is played out on another continent. Jerry is married to Margarita, and they have two children together, Noah and Nia Peña. Welcome, Jerry. That was great, Ashley. You know, Jerry, you should have Ashley speak like in memoriam at your funeral or something. <laughs> that did sound great. And actually, I have to update that. So I've been married 20 years. <laughs> ah! <laughs> no, and that, that was my fault. So no worries. <laughs> Jerry has been married 20 years to Margarita, and they have two children together, Noah and Naya. That's, that's fabulous. 20 years, Jerry. That's fantastic. So tell me, Jerry, you've been doing this a long time. How many years have you been engaged in community activism and organizing work? Uh, so I would say close to 20 years. I've been working in community, different roles, um, not only here in Ohio, but uh, around the country, organizing, policy advocacy. Yeah, tons of work in community. So what are your, some of your favorite memories from your community organizing work? Can you tell us a little bit specifically about your organizing work in Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Um, so some of my favorite memories in Northeast Ohio, I would say, so one of them is a couple of years ago, um, I was working on a side project with the Hispanic Alliance here in Cleveland. We were really trying to figure out how to get folks motivated to vote. And we actually uh, were looking at customs in the countries that our families came from, right? So 
Puerto Rico, South America, you know, what are those things that really motivate people to get civically involved? And one of them was um, actually going door to door and giving people a loaf of bread, right? And this was not to buy their vote. Let me just be clear about that. We were giving everybody a loaf of bread, but it was a way of engaging in a really neighborly and friendly way and saying, hey, we're here to talk about voting, but whether you're voting or not, we want to share this loaf of bread with you and your family. And so it was amazing to go door to door and see people's faces when they opened up and we had like these bags of like a hundred bread loaves. <laughs> and like, like, what is this? Right? It was like a moving bakery. <laughs> but that was, that was a really great memory. I would say the other great memory was a couple of weeks ago. So through this, you know, pandemic and this quarantine that the whole world is sort of going through right now, we were trying to figure out again, how to motivate folks to get civically involved, being that most folks had to stay at home. So in the island of Puerto Rico and in a lot of South American countries around election time, they do a lot of uh, what we call caravanas, caravans, right? People, you know, get in their cars, they use loudspeakers and music, you know, and, and usually in those countries, whoever's the loudest gets elected. Right. And so <laughs> we were trying to figure out, you know, how to get folks excited about the primary. So we put together this caravan in the Clark Fulton neighborhood. It was about 12 cars, made sure that social distance was in place and we kept it safe. But like we got the radio station La Mega involved and we went around blasting music, playing PSAs. And then we had volunteers in cars that were delivering uh, the vote-by-mail applications to people's porches. And it was, like, super exciting. I think folks felt like, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, like, really engage folks. But the folks in their homes really felt like it was, like, it was a treat to them. They were stuck in their houses for weeks. They finally see some commotion, and they're trying to figure out what this is all about. So those are two fond memories I've had. Jerry, when we pitched this to you, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic. We pitched this as, right, governance in the time of pandemic and what does that look like? So how has COVID-19 and these stay-at-home orders, how has that reshaped the work that you do in the community? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's totally, I've totally, I've totally thrown out everything I've learned around organizing and had to relearn. Uh, <laughs> I'm over 40, so for me, um, Community engagement and face-to-face and one-on-ones is, you know, it's the way I was trained and it's still really important to me. And so the technology side of it is something I had to recently learn. And actually through this pandemic, fast forward in in that learning, I would say that I've learned that there's still a way we can really engage community, whether it's in person or not. But one thing that that I've also seen and learned and talked about with community partners is that there is such a generational divide around technology. And there's a segment of the population we haven't really been able to reach because they're not as technology savvy as others. And so that's been heart wrenching because those are members in community, uh, a lot of them older members who have been used to like being at community meetings you know, having that face-to-face, those coffee sessions where we're able to talk about what's going on in community and and they haven't been able to do that. And so I think for me, that's that's really been the tough part around this pandemic. That's so interesting to hear you talk about it. I've been having similar conversations around 
how different organizers and organizations are pivoting in this moment and, and trying to figure out how to, to do relationship building in such a different way. Um, so I'm wondering, how have you thought about engaging in things like protest or activism or just even political dissent, right? So being frustrated um, in a way that's thoughtful of others, right, during this time. So recognizing that public health is really important, how do you still do kind of these other things as well? So there's the relationship building side, but also the action side. So of, of course, you know, our, our Zoom capabilities have really increased in the last month or so and trying to do more virtual and and digital type meetings. But I would say as far as action tools, like the caravana I just talked about is a, a real good example of like trying to figure out how to still be in community um, and get the word out. Right now, on May 24th, we're, we're planning another caravana. It's going to be focused around the census. So we want to make sure that through this time of uh, quarantine that folks don't forget that they need to be counted because as we're seeing, resources are really important in the communities that we're working in. And the census is a way to really capture those resources in the future. And so we're planning another uh, caravan based around the census voting, but also around community issues. Uh, one of the, the cool things that we want to do is a drive through voter registration event on that day. And so I think that's a, a way of uh, maintaining safety, um, but also making sure that we get folks registered to vote. So we might set up some cars. Uh, or we might set up actually some volunteers that have, you know, uh, tablets or, you know, applications, of course, ensuring that they have masks and gloves on and, you know, whatever else we need to make sure that folks are safe. As folks drive in, you know, we hand them at a safe distance the application. They're able to fill it out. Um, we also want to make sure that we're able to hand masks to people that are coming through the voter registration drive as a way of, as a giveaway, uh, but around safety, right? And, you know, just to make sure that, um, that we're keeping everybody safe, but that we're giving everybody a voice still in this, you know, democratic process that this country is all about. So yeah, those are some of the things that we're, we're trying to innovate and structure as we move forward. And any new idea is welcome. We talk about new ideas every day. Those are some ways we're thinking about it. So I've been seeing on the news, obviously everybody's probably seen the protest happening in Michigan and in Nevada and other places. Protest is an important part of democracy, obviously. So, but what does that look like with social distancing and stay at home in place? Are there ways that we can engage in protest or is that just not feasible at this time? So yeah, first I want to say that protests are important. I mean, most of the great changes that have taken place in this country have been through the use of protests. And so we don't want to forget about that. Whether we agree with the protest that's going on or not, I think that's a tool that could never be um, diminished in this country. I feel like uh, there might be a way to continue to do it in a safe way. We were thinking about this the other day. You know, is there, for example, on the west side of Cleveland, is there a huge parking lot at a high school or another venue where we can create a protest structure but do it in a way where like people are six to 10 feet apart. We still have the signs. We, you know, people are still giving their rallying cry or their chants. 
but in a way that that's safe, but that doesn't diminish the tools of democracy. Um, because I think that that's that's important, right? There's there's many folks right now that are thinking about these protests in Nevada and in other states, and and again, like I said, whether you agree with it or not, it's a tool that that has lasted the test of time in this country, and that we have to figure out how we move forward in a safe way. You know, this makes me think about other ways of reaching kind of our our targets, for lack of a better word, right? So part of protest is to kind of collectively organize and to bring attention to an issue for policymakers to think about, right? So it's, it's hard to not engage when people are protesting and pay attention in some way. Are there other means for also reaching out to, uh, in addition to kind of thinking about safe ways of engaging in socially distanced protests, but there are there other ways for reaching out to elected officials and, and kind of, do you have any recommendations for what that might look like to, for people? Yeah. So I recently just got done working for a great organization called the Alliance for Safety and Justice. And every year they put together an event in the states that they work in at the state capitals called Survivors Speak, right? There's a survivors, like a national Survivors Speak. And then there's Survivors Speaks Ohio, Illinois, California, Florida, and so on and so on. This year, um, unfortunately, the pandemic happened around the time that all these survivors speak happened around the country. And so one thing that they did, which I thought was really interesting, um, was that they put together a virtual survivor speak nationally, and they invited uh, elected officials to be a part of that and to listen to uh, citizens and residents and constituents uh, virtually and online. And it went, uh, it was wonderful. It was a two-hour event. Several congressmen and women were able to speak. Um, and they were able to hear directly from survivors around their needs and what policies that they would like to see uh, implemented in their states and around the country. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's many creative ways that we can still do this as long as public officials are open to being a part of that conversation. I love that. Yeah. I mean, so Jerry, that actually brings up a specific question for me. I know that in uh, the city in Northeast Ohio that I live in, that they've started they're going to hold council meetings over Zoom, which <laughs> sounds messy to me, but I, right, I understand the need to, to continue to do that and that this is the technology we have at our disposal. But given what you were talking about in terms of that there are populations, such as the elderly population, that maybe isn't so technology savvy or doesn't have the access to that, what other populations might be at risk of now not being able to participate in these kind of conversations that are really, you know, meaningful and important? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I think about even folks who are technology savvy or have Wi-Fi, there's, you know, spots in the city where, uh, you know, Wi-Fi is shaky or they can't get a good reception. Of course, there's, you know, poor and impoverished folks in the city of every color who don't have access to technology. So I think we have to figure that out as we move along. Here's the thing that I would say is important. Though the council meetings might seem messy, I think broadcasting them is way more important than not broadcasting them at all, because at least there's some public uh, uh, vision around what's happening, right? And those who are able to sort of capture that message can deliver it on to others who are not listening to what's going on. I think when things when things are done behind closed doors, 
that's when it can become very dangerous and lead to things that um, that we don't want as as a democratic society in this country. So, so yes, there's a lot of uh, vulnerable populations that that at first might not be able to get the the message or you know whatever is being able to convey to them. But I think that there's also a way to make sure that we work on getting them the message right away, and we just have to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, transparency even just at the the most basic level of creating spaces for people to engage. So I'm thinking, I, uh, you know, about COVID nineteen, and it's creating, you know, it, it's it's requiring that we rethink so many things, right? It's re- requiring us to rethink how we um, live in community, how we build relationships, how we communicate, how we engage in activism and protest. Do you see any specific opportunities um, to make lasting policy changes because of COVID-19? Definitely. I see uh, several opportunities. One of them is I feel like we should create some sort of policy to make Wi-Fi free and accessible to the whole country, right? We're seeing that now where folks are having a hard time um, accessing uh, Wi-Fi or just, you know, technology, period. I think that there's uh, an opportunity to create policies where, you know, we talk about universal income all the time, whether folks agree with it or not. But in a time of need like this, I feel like there needs to be some emergency fund that goes right in place and helps folks get the resources that they need to survive, right? Um, I think... Congress has tried a lot of different uh, means and ways around this time to do that. But if we can get something passed that kicks in right away when we have these national emergencies, then we don't have to worry about Congress going back and, and arguing about how many trillion or billion or whatever it is that we need to continue our lives. So um, those are the two major things I'm thinking about. I'm also thinking about education and how it plays out in these times of national emergencies, right? There's some schools that were really good about um, transitioning and and doing virtual education uh, for children and continuing that. There's a lot of public schools that were missing that funding that they needed to even get, you know, those kids off the ground when this happened. And so, you know, a lot of those children, unfortunately, are behind right now. And what happens next year you know, if we ever get to some normalcy in this country. And so making sure that public education dollars are increased and are available, I think are really important. I wonder if maybe we can end with some good news. (laughs) And so maybe there are some positive examples from your work or your network across the country of folks that are taking action out there, either, you know, individually or collectively, and how the work that they're doing could serve as a model for Northeast Ohio. So there's a lot of folks around the country doing doing great work that I know. Um, I would probably keep, I'm going to keep it local, right? And so there's an organization that I work with here in Ohio and in Cleveland called Neighborhood Connections. Um, Neighborhood Connections has been doing some really great uh, community organizing with residents around the city and county for many, many years. They've been able to actually put together some really great platforms during this quarantine to actually engage citizens. So they do this thing called the Marketplace every month where folks are able um, and this is before the quarantine where folks are able to come together and do something that they call an offer 
or a request or just a statement of where they are in their lives. And so they've been able to transition virtually to do that. We did a marketplace last week where I was actually able to host that marketplace. We have folks chime in from Pittsburgh, from around the country to this marketplace. And, you know, some of the things were really simple that were requested or offered like, you know, I'm in need of my family's short of toilet paper and we really don't have any money to buy any right now. Or, you know, my family is used to eating healthy and we're used to eating at least a, a banana once a day, but we don't have access to get these bananas. And so the network members were able to match and say, hey, I live down the street from you. I'm going to the grocery store today, picking up a bunch of bananas and putting them on your porch, which that may sound really simple, but it's actually heartwarming um, and a way for us to continue being good neighbors and and, um, and good representatives of humanity through this crisis. So I think Neighborhood Connections has actually done that in a way where it's super exciting. The other good news or, or way of doing this is, you know, um, Metro West, which is the CDC, that's one of the CDCs here on the West Side. Um, they put together a calling list um, every week where we call residents and just see how they're doing or what they need or, you know, if there's anything that we can help with. There was some funding on some free Wi-Fi spots. And so through those conversations, we've been able to drop off some free hotspots to folks so they're able to, <laughs> to, to get in touch with other people and start to use this technology um, in a new way. So, And I think around the country, there's a lot of great folks innovating and, and trying to figure out how we continue. Um, to deliver good news and, and deliver resources that people need. So there's a bunch of shout outs I can make and, and you know, but uh, I think everybody, I think I just want to say what you uh, both are doing through this democracy project and these podcasts and, and making sure that you're listening to people that are really doing the work out there on the ground and like getting the word out is another way that, you know, who, who can say the democracy project and you know this is just great thank you so much i mean the listening to those stories just I, I seriously have goosebumps um right just thinking about how people are in relationship with with each other in in such a non-traditional way right like thinking through how do you how do you build those relationships how do you build community how do you sustain community that's there as well in 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 a time where you know we're asked to stay away from each other. It's so to me, it's very powerful. My last, uh, or, or maybe my last question, Casey might have a couple more, but um, you know, what else do you want to add? You know, when we're thinking about the importance of civic and political engagement, you know, what do you want listeners to be thinking about uh, going forward and, and, and what civic and political engagement can mean in the time of a pandemic? That's a great question. What I would say to that is that the democratic process in this country hasn't stopped. There's still a general election coming up in November. The census is happening now. We're definitely seeing um, through this pandemic where resources are needed in, in communities that we work in. And the census uh, moving forward is going to be important to really highlight those communities. And so what I would say to folks is that continue to get involved. The work hasn't stopped, even if it's just, it doesn't look traditionally like what you're used to. There are many ways that we're developing now for you to engage. 
Um, and let's figure that out together because, you know, as we move forward in this country, don't get me wrong, this pandemic is going to change the way we, uh, we do outreach for many, many years to come. But we also have to look at it in a way as in a positive way. How can we, how can we innovate? How can we create new structures that continue to keep democracy alive in this country and that continue to keep um, citizens engaged and we're not going to stop and we don't want folks to stop. And so, you know, that, that would be my message. Let's, let's figure this out together. And, you know, your voice is now way more important than it ever was before. And I know every year or every election cycle, we talk about this is more the most important election in our lifetime. And even though it's redundant, I'm going to say it again. This November is probably the most important election in our lifetime because of the way and the structure that it's going to take place. And we can't, we got to continue to put our foot on, on the gas and on the pedal and move forward. Jerry, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to hear from you. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you both. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk to Scott Kelly, professor of geography at the University of Nevada at Reno. Dr. Kelly talks to us about geolocation data and potential issues with its use everywhere, but especially in contact tracing.